0: Philippians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 and we're going to go all the way down through verse number 9. Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Philippians. And so let's let's hear what he has to say and what God has to say to us. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat, Yodia and I entreat uh, Synchete, wonderful names, um, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have, I don't know if he actually said it like that, but that's just the way I felt like saying it. Help these women, y'all, who have labored side by side with me and the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Seems like a lot of repetition in Paul's writings, but before we get into it, let's pray again. God, thank you again for being here with us, Lord. Man, we just, we feel your presence and we thank you for that, God. Thank you that you are alive. Thank you that your word is alive and that you just spoke to us, Lord. And I just pray that you would heal hearts, restore uh, in this room and sharpen our minds and our hearts towards you, that we may not just be hearers, but also doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is here in chapter four to the letter uh, to the church of Philippi, is wrapping up this rich theologically, uh, rich and in instruction book towards, uh, it seems like his favorite folk, right? It's like his favorite people. He loves these people. and He talks so much about this love. And he says, and he begins this last part in chapter four of this letter, although they would not have seen chapters or numbers like that. When Paul says, um, therefore, when he says this here, he's talking about, so in light of all of the things that you just heard me write to you about, in light of me dropping the bombs of culture, in light of me saying that your kingdom citizen, that your citizenship belongs to Christ the King, in light of that, in light of that your righteousness is not your own, but it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been poured out on you. In light of all of that, Paul says, therefore, and he says to stand firm in all of these things. Now again, Paul's using a lot of repetition if you look back in chapter one, I believe down in verse 26, he says the same thing. It says, stand firm in the things that you know, right? And so Paul here is, again, he's, he's laying out this beautiful conclusion to this wonderful church. And he says, therefore, stand firm. And then he gets a little ooey gooey with these people. Like he just doesn't say, I love you. Like, look what he says. Like, I really love you. You guys are, look what he says, my joy and my crown. I didn't think Paul was married, right? Isn't that how you read this? Like, this is how I would describe a spouse or how I would describe a deep affection for my children. Like my children, like I love you guys. And hopefully one day they'll move off and go to college. And I'll be like, then I'll say, I long to be back with you guys, right? And, and, And you guys are my joy. You're my crown. You're my reward. It sounds like Paul is writing to children, doesn't it? Or it sounds like his deep affection to a spouse. But who are these people? his church. Uh, And and let me just go ahead and say this. I don't know if I have that same affection, right? Now, don't look at me with your scouring righteous eyes. I mean, come on now. Are you up in bed at night thinking, oh, Matthew, the church? I hope not, because that just sounded weird. Oh, refuge, my joy, my crown, my reward. Myrna would look at me like, what in the heck is wrong with you, child? But this is an affection that Paul has for these people. And so he goes, okay, so therefore, all of those things that I've, I've talked to you about, in light of all of that, my deep love, my deep affection for you. Remember, somebody's reading this letter out and, and notice what happens. Um, excuse me, um, uh, Yodia and Syntyche, you two women need to get it together. Could you imagine being those two women in the church? I'd be like, <laughs> I'm not Yodia. You know what I'm saying? I'm, that's her, right? Could you imagine? Be, I mean, come on. As if we could ever worry about two women feuding in a church. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> Seriously, think about this. Could you imagine being these two woman, those two women, and you've read this whole letter out before, not just before an individual, but an entire church congregation in a house? Could you imagine being those two ladies, and Paul calls you out? Man, I would feel so small. I'm like, um, Syntyche or however your name is, honey, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And notice what he says about them. And these women were perhaps in leadership. In fact, I think they were in leadership just because they had such a prominent role that Paul would call them out, right? And he's, he doesn't say it's, you're not allowed to have disagreements. He doesn't say that. These are disagreements, what? in the Lord. So there's where the problem lies with these two ladies. Their disagreements aren't like, you like purple, she likes pink. We're going to feud about that, honey. Oh, you told me about like purple. Girl, I will slap you in the face. It ain't that kind of feud. These are, these are, these are like legit matters. And it's the reason why Paul would call them out. You have disagreements in the Lord, you need to reconcile. Have disagreements because these are the foundational things that are keeping the church together. Paul thinks it's so important to call two women out in the church because their problems aren't necessarily about preferences. These are problems within the Lord. Now we don't know what kind of problem this was. We don't know if this was a doctrinal issue or what type of doctrinal issue it was. But Paul thinks it was such a big deal that he had to tell them, "Listen, y'all need to get yourself together." and stop the feuding. Stop with the in the Lord disagreements. And so now he's going to move in to, he's going to give us really four ideas that I really want to point out over the next several verses. So four things that Paul outlines in all of that, in all of his deep affection, in all of him saying, therefore, after all these things that I've said, and in light of him calling out two ladies in the church, he's going to give you four ideas These are four ideas that Paul has for the church and four ideas that Paul has for also the church universal. If you guys are there, just say amen. You guys with me? Did you go to bed at a decent time? Okay, well, drink your coffee. Here's the first idea Paul gives us, rejoice right. Okay, there's a right way to rejoice and there may be a wrong way to rejoice. So Paul's gonna give us the right way here. Look back in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Hey, ladies, you feuding? Rejoice in the Lord. Despite your circumstances, rejoice in the Lord. What is the action of joy? Come on, think back. Rejoicing. Thank you, Daniel. The action of joy, this is the big theme in Philippians. So you see joy and you'll see rejoicing and it's the same word. One is joy and the action of the joy is you celebrating, rejoicing. Another translation of this would be the cheer on. So we cheer on in the Lord. You want know to think of, I think of just praising God, praising in the Lord. Are our our lives marked by rejoicing, a life of joy? And look what he goes on to say. He says, and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So not only are you rejoicing, but you're also letting your reasonableness or, or a better translation of this word would be gentle. Because what is a byproduct of joy? Gentleness. Think of what the antithesis of joy is. Debbie Downer right? And so what is a byproduct of being angry and a Debbie Downer? You ever met a Debbie Downer or someone who's constantly angry, be gentle? Yeah, neither have I. I don't think they exist. A byproduct of constantly being angry and being that Debbie Downer is that you're snappy. You're not gentle, right? Like you're a hater. Nobody likes you. Nobody wants to be around you. And I'm not talking about any of y'all you guys are all pleasant, right? right? Amen. Yeah. So why should we be seen as a joy-filled people, people who are constantly rejoicing? Well, because where there are people who are constantly rejoicing in the Lord, you're going to find a gentle people. Come on, would you agree we need more of that in our society today? I mean, all of the biting, all the, the, the fighting and the debating. It's not just debate. It's like hate debate, right? All of that. What marks you and I as a believer is this. People who are rejoicing in the Lord and a byproduct of that, out of that flows gentleness. So that's what right rejoicing looks like. He goes on and he says, because what happens when you're not rejoicing? What happens if you're not being gentle as you're likely worrying? So he says, do not be anxious or do not worry about anything. Here's what this means. This means to be pulled into different directions. Here's what hope does. Hope pulls you towards one direction. Worry pulls you apart in different directions. So he says, do not worry. Or, and the old English root word that we get worry, it means to strangle. Isn't that interesting? you ever met somebody who's always worried? They just seem like they're strangled with life. I mean, and and and, and doctors would say if you're constantly living a life of worry, of, of all the anxiety, then it's going to begin to what? Affect your health, right? And so Paul here is saying, um, Worry is going to be your greatest enemy of joy. Worry and and anxiety is the greatest threat to gentleness. That's why he's saying, do not worry. Yeah, Paul, but what about the feuding, right? Well, don't worry, don't be anxious. Well, Paul, um, what about Nero? He's a pretty wicked dude. Yeah, don't worry, don't be anxious about that. What about like, like the poverty all around? Like, what do we do? Like, what do, what do we do, Paul? Yeah, don't worry about it. What about in, in, in our terms today? Like, like, what are you worrying about? Like, think about it. Paul says, yeah, don't worry about it. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. What about our crazy culture? Don't worry about it. What about all that life is throwing at you right now? Do not be anxious. And so then he's gonna move into the second idea. So the first one is, this is what right rejoicing looks like. And the next one is, this is what right prayer looks like. Because I like what Paul doesn't say. Well, let let me read this real quick. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So I like that Paul just doesn't say, well, just pray about it, right? Don't you love to hear that? Or don't you love, if Paul knew what was happening in the church, don't you love that Paul didn't say, well, I'm just going to be praying for you? Don't you love hearing that? Because you know what that means. They ain't going to be praying for you, right? And when somebody just says, well, just pray about it, they're probably not really even interested in what's happening in your life. So I really love that Paul just doesn't just throw that out there too. He's not just like, hey, just pray about it and work itself out. You're fine. Everything's going to be fine. Look what he says. He says, he uses three different words about what right prayer looks like. Adoration, supplication, and thanksgiving. And, and right prayer looks like all three of these things. Now prayer, in general, Uh, is a word where we make our requests known to God. It carries that idea of adoration, devotion, and worship. So look how Paul tells you to pray. Your first move in prayer to God is what then? Is adoration. What does that do when we are beginning our prayer, just adoring and worshiping God? You know what that does? It takes your eyes off of yourself which is so needed in our world today because we're so self-centered and we think everything revolves around, like, like, like we are the God that we serve. But what does prayer do? Prayer takes you off of your high horse and takes your eyes on Christ. And look how, how good God is. What is right prayer? It always begins with you looking to Jesus Christ, you looking and marveling at how beautiful Jesus is that's adoration. And Paul says like, okay, so just when you pray, you're going to start with adoring what Christ has done for you and who he is alone. And then he moves into the supplication. And it's just a fancier way of just saying, tell God what you need. You know, I think think sometimes we we fall into a category of like, well, I just don't think God would hear my prayers. Right? Ever been there before? You just think like, you know, God is so far out there. Like, why would God want me to go to him? And so we, we're left with the question of, of, does God even answer prayer? Does God answer prayers? Yes. Yes, God answers our prayers. God's answered some prayers for some of us this week. Amen? Yes, God answers prayers. But the problem is we just don't think that God has time for us or that God wants to be bothered by us. We think that we're just a bother to God, right? One of my favorite illustrations of prayer um, that I think it it helps me, I think it just helps everybody, is is in Luke chapter 18. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. But if you wanna write it down, Luke 18, one through eight, or maybe two through eight, it says this, listen to what, listen to Jesus's illustration of prayer. This is kind of funny there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. This is a wicked guy. And then a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, gosh, wouldn't you like to have that guy as your judge? Yet because this widow keeps, listen to this word, pestering me. I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And I love this right here. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Did you just hear what Jesus describes? Prayer. You catch it? you've got children. Maybe you caught it if you had children. You know what children are the best at? Pestering. They have a PhD in nagging. Their specialty in life is to nag the living daylights out of mom and dad. If you don't have kids, I'm not trying to influence you not to having kids because they can be a joy. That's what I have to tell myself sometimes. You know what I mean? Self, they're a joy. But then other times they're a nag. My three-year-old, if you haven't met Ezra, then I don't know if you're doing life right. He's, he's the epitome of Nag. I love him to death, I do. But he has this thing where he constantly repeats himself. Hey, dad, did you see this? Hey, dad, did you see this? Hey, dad, did you see this? Hey, dad, 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 dad. Hey, daddy, daddy, look at this. Hey, daddy, look at this. (laughs) He is the persistent widow in this story. And look what God says, bother him, pester him, nag him. Why? Because the Lord, will he will act swiftly on your behalf. You ever feel like you can't go to God with your prayers and with your needs? Just remember Luke 18. God wants you to bother him with your prayers. He wants you to bother him and pester him and nag him With your needs that you have. And Paul knows this and he's telling me, he's like, y'all take your supplications to the Lord because he cares for you. He wants you to bother him. He wants you to nag him. And then lastly, he says, and then you just give thanks to him. Like so many times I think in our prayer life, like we just think, all right, I'm done. That's it. No, God wants you to thank him. And it's not like as if he's some judge up there just, you know, demanding our gratitude. No, not at all. He's done so much for you already. Why wouldn't you want to thank him? So, Paul, right here in just these few verses, already told us, like, hey, this is what rejoicing looks like, and this is what prayer looks like. And he moves on, and then he tells us what right thinking looks like. So, you have. You have this godly view of rejoicing, a godly view of prayer, but we also have a godly view of thinking. Let me read verse eight again. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's look at some of these words in what is right thinking. I like what he says right here. So whatever is true, all right? So, so we live in a postmodern world, right? Where um, there really is no such thing as absolute truth, right? Your truth is yours, that's fine. My truth is mine. And that's it. That's kind of the world we live in. And if you claim to have an absolute truth then you're kind of viewed as a bigot, And you're kind of viewed as like, oh, you're one of those people. You're one of those fundamental Christians who has an absolute truth. You get mocked, right? It's the culture we live in. It's the world we live in. We want your truth to be yours. It's fine. My truth is mine. And you better not dare insert something that you think is an absolute truth. But we know there's truth. This is the danger of, of people saying, Well, I just gotta go with my heart. It's the danger of, well, I just gotta I just gotta feel it, man. You know, what is my heart saying? Isn't that what you know we heard all of our life? Well, but, but what's your heart telling you to do? Well, your heart is deceitful above all things. Why would you even try to understand it and follow it? Paul says, focus on the truth focus on what is true. We know what is truth because we have the word of God as our standard for truth. That's an absolute, that Christ is king. That's an absolute. That Christ died and he rose again and the tomb is empty. That's the truth. The truth is, is that one day Christ will come and resurrect us to be with himself. That's the truth. And that's what marks us so fundamentally different from anyone else, is that you and I have a fundamental truth. And Paul says, what right thinking looks like is absolute truth. Not what Nero says is true because he thinks that he is God. That's not true. Rome thinks that it is the epicenter of the universe. That's not true. Focus on what is really true. Focus on what he's told them, that you are kingdom citizens. That's true. That's true. And move on. I could, I could do a whole sermon on that, but I'll, I'll keep going. He says, whatever is honorable and just, that, that just means what, whatever is worthy of respect and whatever is worthy of just, whatever is pure, lovely, and commendable. Most scholars believe that he's, he's talking about the sexual impurities. That we're trying to creep up in this church, and, and the sexual impurities that were all around culture, and so he's throwing this also in there is what thinking right looks like, pure thoughts, commendable thoughts, and then he says excellence and worthy of praise, and lastly, look what he says right here. Man, we need to pray the Holy Ghost bring some cold air up in this place. It is hot. Verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So so he gives us this this other, this fourth thing, fourth thing is to to live right. Paul has been on repeat in a lot of ways in this book because he's already said this, follow me, right? He says this to the church of Corinthians, follow me as I do what? Follow Christ, In other words, Paul is saying this yet again, live like me as I'm living like King Jesus. Live like the King Jesus. Live sacrificially. Live with grace and humility. Live with joy. Live a life of prayer and devotion to Christ. Live a life where your thinking is right, where your thinking lines up with the word of God and live like it. Live like kingdom citizens. Again, Paul is so repetitious in this letter to the Philippians. Live like kingdom citizens would live and practice these things that are true. This is reminiscence of James 1 chapter twenty. Chapter one, verse 22, be not hearers of the word only, but what? Doers of the word, yeah. And so, so Paul's like, man, you, know, you got to do this too. It's one thing to come in and consume and consume and consume. You know what you end up becoming? What Amos would call you? The fat cows of Bashan. Remember that prophet? Not a very popular prophet to be preaching through when he looks over at the Israelites, he's like, you guys are a bunch of fat cows. Could you imagine being that guy afterwards? That's a life of consumerism. That's a life of always coming in, consuming the word, listening to the, your 5 million podcast. Refuge City Church, better be on that list. Listening to all of the preachers and everything, but you never do. You just end up being this person who is a consumer. And so Paul's like, you know, consume, yes, but also do. Work out what you have been told. Do what you have been told as a believer. So just a few questions, and then we're gonna go into communion in just a second. Are you rejoicing in Christ? Or are you loathing in your situations? Well, preacher, you don't know what I'm going through. Okay, maybe I don't. But the Bible tells you to rejoice in a victorious king who's conquered death, hell, and the grave. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your situations. Because we can do that, can't we? We can, uh, another word of the rejoice is to hell, not the bad place or not the ice that falls from the sky, but to cheer on. You can cheer on your bad situations just as much as you can cheer on your good situations. But Paul says, you rejoice in the Lord. What are you rejoicing in? How's your prayer life? Are you praying to Christ? Or do you find yourself in that category of, well, I just don't know if God even cares about me. Why should I even go to him? Would he even hear me? Would he care? No, Jesus said, go bother him. Go pester the Lord. How's your mind? How's your mind doing? You know, we've lived a year and a half of nothing but doom and disaster and gloom. Amen? Am I the only one that watches the news? I probably shouldn't so much, right? I mean, it's everywhere. Sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in those things where you're just like, oh, this is it. We're all dead, Miranda. We're all gonna die. Let's go bunker down, honey, right? Yeah, what's your thinking like? In fact, what this year has brought, um, th- this past year brought down the life expectancy by a year and a half. And not just, uh, they, they equate COVID for that, but it wasn't just COVID, it was suicide. Because of COVID and suicide, the life expectancy went down a year and a half. Let me ask you one more time. How's your thinking? What are you dwelling on? And lastly, like, are you living for King Jesus? I mean, that's it, it's pretty simple. We've received his grace. We've received his mercy and his kindness and his love and his gentleness. Are we living that out? Are we living for the King Jesus? So I just want to encourage you to just kind of wrestle through those. Think about those things throughout the week.